Bow with me, if you will, as we pray. Almighty God, you have lavished your love on us. You've given us your grace, grace upon grace. And we're mindful this morning of the privilege we have to call you our Father and we to be called your children. God, we want to be generous as you have been generous with us. And I pray in these moments that we have together, as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would open our hearts to think about this subject and to be mindful of the responsibility you've entrusted to us, not to hold what you've given us, but to share it freely for your glory. So bless us to that end, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to you on the value of generosity from Acts chapter 20. So if you want to make your way to Acts chapter 20, I'll be there here in just a moment in our series, Refocus. I listen to a broad range of podcasts and read very widely. And I heard a guy on a podcast recently who is not a Christian, and he encouraged asking three self-reflection questions every day. Question number one, what have I received? To expand our awareness of what we have, to shift our lives from an attitude of complaint to an attitude of gratitude. Question number two, what have I given? Because we often receive far more than we give. And there's this practical interdependence about life. And when we give... We can bless other people even with small acts of generosity that might seem insignificant in the moment. Question number three, what troubles and difficulties did I cause? He said it helps us see the realities of our own lives and what it's like for other people to have to deal with us. Do we want to be conscious of how we live our lives and aware of how we affect others? He said, how would life change if we didn't default to complaint, but rather we defaulted to gratitude? Now, all of this comes from a non-Christian man. And if he can ask these questions that are so probing and so important, how much more important is it for those of us who are in Christ to ask similar questions about our relationship with God how we interact with the world, how we're making a difference for the glory of God. So far in our Refocus series, we've emphasized the value of relationships in the church, the value of discipleship, and the value of outreach. There's a message of grace in the value of outreach that is to be received by faith, and then faith bears the fruit of good works. The value of outreach is that we're blessed to share what God has freely given to us in Jesus Christ. Now, at a certain point in his ministry, the Apostle Paul was in Miletus, and he sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when he gathered them together, he recounted his faithful gospel ministry among them. He was on his way to Jerusalem, and he gave the leaders of the church some specific instructions on how they were to shepherd the church of God, what God was expecting of them 
and also how Paul had carried out his ministry and his co-laborers with him in order to set the example. And I want to read Acts chapter 20 in verse 32 to 35 as we pick up in the middle of this exchange with Paul and the elders. Verse 32, he says, And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I want to share with you three principles of generosity and then some application that goes along with that within the third principle. The first principle is that you can only give what you have first received. Verse 32, he commits them to God and also to the word of God's grace. And what we're drawn into here is a reminder of why God made us to begin with. He made us for his glory and for a relationship with him. And when we go back to the creation narrative with Adam and Eve, we were reminded of how God placed them there in the Garden of Eden. It was the place on earth where he would be with them. And the Bible indicates that the presence of God walked with them in the garden. So I want you to imagine the immediate presence of God in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, all of his holiness, all of his perfection as a part of the regular routine of daily life. But we know that Adam and Eve rebelled against God by listening to the spiritual enemy. And sin brought disastrous consequences because of that to the point that they were banished from the presence of God. Yet God promised that he was going to make a way for them to be reconciled. And the way to be reconciled would be through the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And the story of the Old Testament is the unfolding of the coming of the Messiah. It's the story of God, how he made a covenant with Abraham and and with Israel, and he promised that the Messiah was going to come. And in the midst even of their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful to what he promised. God is always faithful to what he promises. He'll always accomplish what he said he will accomplish. And he continued to draw them to himself, and his presence was known through his word and the tabernacle and the temple. And then ultimately Jesus came to dwell among us full of grace and truth. He came to manifest the presence of God on the earth as the ultimate revelation from God. John chapter 1 and verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ came to tabernacle to make manifest the presence of God with us. So Paul says here in Acts chapter 20, that he committed them to God. The truth of the presence of God reminds us that God is with us, that he indwells us through the Holy Spirit. And what that means is that in Christ, you are never alone. Even in your darkest times, you are not alone. Even in your lowest moment, 
you are not alone. Even when it seems like others have forsaken you and it's just you and you don't know where to turn and you don't know what to do, you still are never alone because God is with you. And he committed them to God as well as to the word of his grace. And the truth of the grace of God is a reminder that God is not only with us, but God is for us. That the word of his grace in the gospel is something that God gives to us as a gift. And the grace of God has been referred to as an unbreakable, inexhaustible, unforgettable, precious saving gift. And what follows from this is that because God is with us and God is for us, God is also the one who provides for us. Psalm 24 and verse 1, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of creation belongs to God. And we can say that everything that has been entrusted to us, that has been given to us, that we have been given responsibility for, is from God. He's the source. He's the giver of the gifts. James 1 and verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When we speak of stewardship, we're talking about basically management. It's the responsibility to manage what ultimately belongs to someone else. We are stewards of what God has entrusted to us to be responsible for. And practically, that means everything under our watch. We immediately often go just to the financial end of things, and we limit it to that. But if we do that, we fall short, really, of understanding what stewardship is about because it's all of life. It's, it's comprehensive. It's everything that God has entrusted to us. And Paul defended his ministry among them here in this passage and He did something similar to the church at Corinth, and he made it clear to them how they had what they had. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, he said to the church at Corinth, For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. So he's saying, listen, where's that arrogance coming from? Why are you puffed up with pride somehow thinking that you've done something or that the credit is yours for what you have? He says the only reason you've got what you've got is because it was given to you. And that's where we start with this idea of stewardship is that if we understand that everything belongs to God, including the entirety of our lives and what has been entrusted to us, And if we believe that God has called us to be a faithful steward of that, I think it's a game changer because you can only give what you have first received. Principle number two, you are to give of yourself in worship to God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, he says, In every way I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this. In response to the gift of the presence of God and being entrusted provision from God, the only right response to that is to give of yourself in worship to God. So Paul was sharing his heart here. 
He's saying, listen, in this labor among the churches that God has called me to, I've not been in this for myself. I've not been in this to to build myself up. I've not been in this to get my, uh, my attention or accolades for me. He said, I've been laboring among you. And he in no way wanted to take advantage of anyone, but he wanted to help the weak while he labored. This is the concept of offering yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. I love J.B. Phillips' translation of Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. He said, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated and acceptable to him. The idea of mercy in the Bible means pity or compassion or kindness toward people. And the mercy of God is shown to us consistently. Think about it just for a moment. The mercy of God is shown to you before you come to faith in Christ. By the very fact that God gave you life, and though we all are sinners, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, he extends the gift of salvation to us, and in his mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve, which is judgment. Rather, he gives us what we don't deserve, which is grace. And in giving us that mercy, he's given us the opportunity to come to know him, And then God grants us mercy when we are saved based on the finished work of Jesus because the judgment that we deserved is laid upon our Savior. He's taken the penalty for us, so we receive mercy when we are saved. And then God grants us mercy after we are saved in our service to Him. So the mercies of God are past, they are present, and they are future. Think about some of the things that qualifies the mercies of God in our lives. Forgiveness and justification from the guilt and penalty of sin. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Adoption into the family of God. Life under grace rather than under the law. The assurance of help in times of hurt. Confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Assurance of the continued faithfulness of God regardless of the circumstances of life. Millard Erickson wrote in Christian theology, he said, God's mercy is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It is his tenderness of heart toward the needy. If grace contemplates humans as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy sees them as miserable and needy. This concept of the living sacrifice in Romans 12 and verse 1 is interesting. It related to the priestly order. The Jews and the pagans both knew what a sacrifice was because they had offered animal sacrifices. But the contrast is the animal sacrifices were dead sacrifices. You only offered them once and you could never offer that animal again because it was dead But Paul says that this is a living sacrifice. This is something that you do every day. And every day you can start out with the idea, Lord, here I am to be used. I'm offering myself today as a living sacrifice for you. 
as I interact with my family and my neighbors and the people that I work with and the people that I encounter in the world, wherever I am, you're saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm offering myself as worship to you. I am ready to be used for your glory as a living sacrifice. Spiritually speaking, we are bringing our bodies to the altar so that the entirety of our being is being offered in worship to God. And this is holy and pleasing to him. So God asks for our bodies to be made available to him. He's saying, in effect, bring your bodies and I'll use them just the way they are. That's interesting that most people don't like something about their body. There's always something wrong or something that you're not just quite happy with. And that fuels industries, of course, for our physical health as well as our appearance. Um, And essentially, God, in a way, negates all of that because he doesn't say you've got to change yourself before you can be a living sacrifice. Just bring yourself. Just think of yourself as an available instrument to be used at any time and in any place. And here's the beauty of it. God uses ordinary, flawed people like us who have many needs to change the world. That's the blessing of being a living sacrifice. He will take you right where you are and he will make you what he wants you to be. And offering yourself is what worship is all about. So we're asking a fundamental question. Can God be trusted? The answer emphatically is yes, without any reservation at all. We're also asking, does God love me? And the answer is an unqualified yes. God loves you infinitely more than you can imagine. And in light of that, you ought to give yourself in worship to God. And then principle number three, you're to give of your resources in worship to God. Now, I want to speak to this third point by way of connection with the first two and preface it by saying, I've heard a lot of law preached when it comes to giving. In fact, from time to time, I've heard people strong-armed and had heavy burdens and guilt laid on them when it comes to the subject of giving. And here's what I strongly believe and hold to now more than I ever have. If you understand that you can only give what you have first received, and if you understand that God wants you to give of yourself first in worship to him, then the principle that I'm about to outline will flow freely from your life. But if we start with the idea that we give of our resources without an understanding of what God has first given to us or what our proper response to God is by the grace and the mercy that he's shown to us, we're going to get off track when it comes to the faithful giving of our resources. Worship in the Old Testament included giving, undoubtedly. It it was a very important part of their worship. And speaking in general framework of how they gave, they were instructed to give of the tithe, which represented 10% of their income, the first fruits essentially, and I'm speaking very generally here. They were also instructed to give offerings above and beyond the foundation of their giving, above and beyond the tithe. And then they gave alms or 
assistance for the poor and the needy. God calls his children and his church to grace giving. Paul writes in Acts 20 and verse 35, it is necessary to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Our God is a giving God. In fact, our God loves to give. Our God is the greatest giver of all. And our God has given the greatest gift that has ever been given through his only son, Jesus Christ. And if our God is a giving God, and he is, and if our God loves to give, and he does, and if our God gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given in his son, and he did, then what follows is as children of God, we are called to imitate him. And giving recognizes the goodness of God and what he has done for us. And it flows out of that in response to his blessings in our lives. Now I want to share with you by way of some practical application, as I told you I would, how this ties in to our exercising generosity in the giving of our resources. And let me preface it by saying, as I always do when I preach a specific giving or stewardship message in the church, that I don't know who's faithful and who is not. I made a decision some 25 years ago when I went into pastoral ministry that I was not going to know. Because ultimately, it's not me to whom you're going to give an account. It's the Lord to whom you're going to give an account. So whether or not I know it doesn't make a whole lot of difference, but it makes a whole lot of difference that the Lord knows it. So I don't know who's faithful and who is not, but I'm thankful for those who are. First idea here of application is that Christians are expected to give by Jesus. Nowhere does Jesus in the New Testament negate the idea of giving. In Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about the importance of being careful not to practice our righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, we have no reward with our Father who is in heaven. He said when we give. He didn't say if we give. He didn't say if it's convenient to give, if you get around to giving, or if you have something left over to give. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said whenever you give. And then he began to talk about giving to the poor and not sounding a trumpet and being like the hypocrites are to be applauded by people. Now, let me just give a footnote here to this principle of the giving of resources. This can also be true in our service to God. We can, with improper motivation, do what we do to be noticed and needed by other people. We can draw attention to ourselves so that people will think perhaps that we're hard workers or we're necessary or church couldn't do without us or we're God's gift to the kingdom. There's all sorts of wrong ways that we can apply this. It's just as important as it is with the financial resources that we give. It's not about us ultimately. And you remember that was one of the first issues that Paul had to deal with when he went to the church at Corinth and he wrote to them his first letter. They were lining up factions behind certain people, and they were lining up uh, according to whatever their personal allegiances were. And Paul says, there's only one allegiance, and that's to Jesus Christ. He's the one that gets the devotion. He's the one that gets the worship. 
So we're expected to give by Jesus, but we want to be careful that we give. Here's the second part of the application for the glory of God and not for the attention of others. Jesus continues in that discussion in Matthew chapter 6, and he said, when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Matthew 6 and verse 3. He said, so that your giving, verse 4, may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's how it works. If you give or you serve or you do in order to be noticed by people, and they notice you, and they pat you on the back, and they build you up, and that's why you were doing it, and that's where you got your satisfaction, friends, you already got your reward. There's no more reward coming. But the reward that will last is the reward that we receive from the Lord when we did it with the right motivation, as best we knew how, not so that other people would notice us, but so that we would gather the attention of God for his glory. And then Christians are to give proportionately according to their means. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2 says, On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he's prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 12 says, For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The Lord expects us to give according to what we have, not what we don't have. Now, sometimes we get caught up in this little trap thinking, well, it's, it's wealthy people that give. They got something to give. Man, they're, they're the people that give. You know who gives? Generous people give. That's who gives. Irrespective of how much they have, they give according to what they have. And yes, there are some who have been given much and they give much and they carry many things and God uses them and those resources in a powerful way. But you remember Jesus drew attention to the widow, the widow's might. You remember that story in the scripture? And Jesus highlighted that and he said, she gave more than all the rest of them. And she barely gave anything as far as an amount. So we give proportionately according to what we have. And we give regularly. Now I want to turn just for a moment on these last three points of application that I have to a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 9. Beginning in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, he says, The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he's decided in his heart not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So an idea here of application is that Christians are to give generously. He says the person who sows generously will also reap generously. That's an idea that's consistent in the scripture. And this is not this is not a health and wealth prosperity teaching here. Uh, you may give very generously of financial resources, and what you ultimately receive is a spiritual blessing. That's up to the Lord. He may pile more financial resources on you too. He can do that. that that's, in his, that's in his capacity to do. But that's not what we're after. 
we're after the ultimate blessing. So we want to be generous people. We just want to be generous with our lives. This is not just about when we write the check or we go online and we give and the church giving. We just want to be generous people. We want to be generous people when we go uh, to the restaurant. We want to be just generous people with our families. We, we just want to be generous. Would God describe you as a generous person? I would hope so. And Christians are to give willingly, according to this. Each person should do as he's decided in his own heart. Those heavy burdens I was talking about that I've heard sometimes when it comes to uh, giving and stewardship messages, you can put a guilt trip on somebody for a while and they might step it up a little bit in their giving or whatever, but it's not going to last. You know why it's not going to last? Because people do what they value. People do what they want to do. And we ought to be praying that God would put it in people's hearts to give willingly out of faithfulness to him. And as we do that, Christians are to give cheerfully. Verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. You ought to be happy when you do it. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. It's not an obligation, it's an opportunity. Give cheerfully, and the Lord is pleased with that. You remember where Jesus told the parable of the faithful stewards in Luke chapter 12? He said, blessed is a servant who the master finds doing his job when he comes. Jesus had some very harsh things to say about the unfaithful ones. And then he said in verse 48 of Luke chapter 12, from everyone who's been given much, much will be required. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. We've talked about that phrase a lot through the years in our church. To whom much is given, much is required, or much is expected. And the reason we've talked a lot about that is we've been given much. We just have. We've been blessed. But we've got to do something with it. That's why we want to be a multiplying body. That's why we want to see souls come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and churches planted and the local church built up and families discipled and strengthened and missions advanced for the glory of God to the ends of the earth. We don't see all these things happening because we realize there's something bigger than us. We are not a reservoir of God's blessing. We are a river of God's blessing. And as long as we keep that mindset that we are not a reservoir, but rather we are a river, God will flow the resources. Time and again, God has shown that to be true in the life of this church. And we're going to keep leaning into that. Because to whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. So I ask you, are you giving of what you have received, starting with a life of worship? And is your giving inspired by the sacrifice of Jesus? Do you know you can't take it with you when you go? There's a little anecdote that's told about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great uh, ruled in the 300s as the king of the ancient Greek kingdom of Macedon. He died at the age of 32. History's a little unclear of exactly what he died of. That was not an incredibly unusual thing for somebody to die that young in that particular time frame, but he did. And Juvenal, the Roman poet, said of Alexander the Great, 
The world was not big enough for Alexander the Great, but a coffin was. The world was not big enough for Alexander the Great, but a coffin was. We're not taking anything with us, but we can send it on ahead and we can invest in lives. We can invest in eternity. And I just want to encourage you, if you're one of those folks that is faithful with your life and with your resources, just continue on. You, you cannot outgive God. You might try, but you cannot outgive God. If you're one of those people that's just a generous person, that's the pattern and the testimony of your life. Just keep on going. And the Lord will encourage you and the Lord will bless you in that. And then also, if you're not faithful with your life or your resources, why is that? Is it a lack of discipleship? Perhaps you didn't know how important a subject this is. Evidently, we've got a lack of discipleship because did you know that the average churchgoer in America, the average evangelical Christian that goes to a church in America, gives somewhere between 2 and 3% of their resources to the Lord's work? We're missing it somewhere. Is it a lack of faith and trust in God? Friend, if you can trust God with your eternity, certainly you can trust him with your life now and the resources he has blessed you with. Is it misplaced priorities in your life stewardship? Ask God to help you order your life in a way that honors him. Is it personal greed or materialism? That is sin. Ask God to set you free from it, if that's your limitation. Now, I remind you once again what Paul says here in Acts chapter 20, the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want to encourage you to give of your best, not your leftovers. I share this story with you and I'm going to close. Todd Brookman wrote uh, an article sometime in the middle of last year entitled, Goodwill Doesn't Want Your Broken Toaster. Now, it's a great illustration. I know that goodwill is ultimately for profit, and there's a lot of questions about some of that, but there's a lot of good that is done as well, a lot of programs that are helped, a lot of people who have particular needs are able to serve and do things. And here's how the article goes. He said, well-intended patrons arrive every day at 10 a.m. at goodwill locations with truckloads full of cast-off items. Goodwill spokesperson Heather Steves said, We hope everyone brings great things that help our programs, but we know that some people make some questionable judgments about what is good to donate. She holds up a lampshade, which is stained and disgusting and literally falling apart. There's also a small table missing a leg, along with cracked purple food storage containers, and get this, a used sponge. They're just a representative sample of the useless stuff dropped off the day before. Along with simply being gross, Brookman writes, these items cost Goodwill money. Steve said all this trash adds up to more than a million dollars a year in a trash bill and it's been growing every year for the past five years and that is only in the 30 stores that she oversees. So I wonder... How many of us are bringing a stained, 
disgusting lampshade that's falling apart to God and trying to disguise that as our best. We ought to give of our best, whatever that is, to God. And that starts with ourselves. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Here in just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to come and he's going to sing the closing song. I'll come back, make a couple of concluding remarks. What has the Lord said to you through his word today about this subject? Are you faithful? Are you generous? Is your life a generous life? If it is, just thank the Lord for instilling that in you and making you like Jesus. I'm not here to discourage you. I'm here to encourage you. And if you're not living a generous life, you've got to start somewhere. And that start would be a prayer of surrender to the Lord and say, Lord, I know things are not ordered in the priorities in, in the way that they should be in my life, but I believe that you're the God of grace and mercy and you could help me order them in a way that they are. And God will help you. And then would you just continue to pray for us as a church that God would help us to understand how much has been entrusted to us and how much is required of us to be faithful? God, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to you. Life itself is a gift from your hand. And we thank you. We want to live as a generous people because you are a generous God. Help us to understand what that means and how to apply it to our lives. God, you've given us the greatest gift of all in your son, Jesus Christ. And that grace that is grace upon grace is overwhelming. And we simply say thank you. Help us as individuals to be found faithful. Help us as a church to be found faithful as your stewards. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.